I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News. And now, let's get things going with the Jack Riccardi Show. And we want to say happy birthday today to the Ford Mustang. Christian, today is the day the first Ford Mustang rolled off the assembly line in 1964. Uh-huh. Did you ever have a Mustang? No, my dad had two of them back when he yeah. was, um, yeah, back in the 60s, late 60s. Yep. Mm-hmm. One of those, uh, I don't know, I, 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 I think it's, you know, I, I'm not sure I've ever met anyone that, that didn't like them. I mean, there's people that don't care for that kind of car, but that's one of those cars. Everybody kind of puts a smile on everybody's face when one goes by. Yeah, so, they're, they're cool cars. We will talk about that later on, but let, let me just start. I want to just start with, um, and of course our phone lines are open. Welcome to our dreadful little show, 210-599-5555. I'm going to say this only so you'll understand where I'm coming from, okay? So I was born in 1965. I started public school in 1970. I graduated from high school in 1983. Um, the, the reason I'm giving you my, my, uh, you know, fence posts or timeline or whatever is, is because that was the period when feminism occupied the space that I would argue, um, race or uh, critical race theory occupies today. In other words, when we were in school, it was routine and omnipresent in the classroom to teach all of us that girls could do anything and everything boys did and do, and that if there was anything that a woman had not yet done in our society... Why, it was just a matter of time before a woman would do those things. That is what we were taught. That was what everybody heard. It was considered extremely important. It may have been, I wasn't aware of political controversies as a little kid. Maybe it was controversial. I don't remember hearing anybody, like at my house, ever complain about it. But that was the, that was the message. That was underlying everything we learned in school. And I had, when I look back on it now, I had teachers, grade school through high school, uh, several who were feminists, militant feminists. So yesterday on our show, we had people calling in, and it was very interesting to hear the different names, and we were asking you to name a, a great American woman in history. And while we were doing that, they were having a ceremony at the White House where they were handing out International Women of Courage Awards, and this has been going on I think this goes back to the Bush administration, so it's not a new thing, but it's an annual event, and Jill Biden was there, the first lady, and they handed out 11 awards for women of courage, and 10 of them went to women. Well, what about the 11th one? The 11th one went to a biological male. Which means that in the whole world, in the whole world, They couldn't find one more courageous, intrepid, inspiring, trailblazing, actual woman or young girl. They could not find one. Now, of course, they could. You and I could. It would be easy for us to name 10 or 11 courageous women just in the women we know. But no, there had to be a man on that stage. One of the recipients had to be a biological male. And I looked at that, and I thought, and the reason I gave you my personal 
timeline is because I thought now for anybody that grew up the way I did and was raised the way I was raised and educated the way I was educated, what are we saying here? Are we saying that sometimes men are better at being courageous women than women are? That sometimes men do the courageous women thing better? That some of the most courageous women are men? I mean, you know, the, the famous uh, economist Frederick Hayek once said, once science has to, has to serve not truth, but the interests of a class or the state, the word truth ceases to have its old meaning. And, and I mean, we, we've just come through a period of a few years when we were told, we were lectured and hectored about the, the, the primacy of science and that you had to have faith in the science and you had to trust science and we needed to be guided by science. But when you give a woman of courage award to a man, that's not science. That's politics. That's what Hayek is talking about. Science is laying down in, in the interest of service to the state or class. The other thing I was thinking about was that this is a brand the Democratic Party is claiming. So at every turn, whether it's boys and girls sports and locker rooms and bathrooms, whether it's curriculum, whether it's awards, at every turn, the Democratic Party is taking the position that some of our best women are men. That is going to uh, utterly blow up in their face. I don't know when. I would have thought it would be happening already. But that can only go on for so long before normal people, people that aren't looking for a fight, people that aren't looking to make trouble, people that don't go out of their way to interfere with the lives of others. You can only tell regular normal people for so long, hey, one of our most courageous women is a man. You can only pretend or ask people to pretend or demand compliance with pronouns from people for so long before they'll say, you're crazy. Your whole party is crazy. And see, I'm old enough to remember, and I've said this many times, when Republicans and Democrats just differed not on where we were going, but just how to get there. They had differences about what the tax rate should be or quaint stuff like that. But if you've got one party saying, sometimes men are women, and sometimes the best women are men, I just think eventually that's going to blow up in their face in a big way. Not only with women, but just with regular people, they're going to be like, you're not serious I can't take you seriously, and therefore I'm not going to listen to you about anything. You're not in the conversation with me anymore. You're not living in the real world. Tell me what you think. 210-599-5555. ESPN has had to apologize for what Kendrick Perkins said on the air the other day when he said 80% of NBA MVP voters are white. Uh, here, here is the apology that the host of First Take, Molly Karam, uh, read on the air yesterday. I want to correct something here from yesterday's show. When Kendrick Perkins said 80% of NBA voters for the MVP award are white, the NBA publicly announces the voters each year, and after review, it is clear the panel is much more diverse than what was portrayed 
by Kendrick Perkins, and we wanted to make sure that we corrected that today. I would have brought this up yesterday, but I had a doctor's appointment and I missed the I missed first take. But um, Molly Karam is the host of the show, along with Stephen A. Smith. For some reason, they had her read this instead of having Kendrick Perkins on to apologize for what he said. I don't know why that would be. Uh, I love Molly, but I think Kendrick should have been the one saying it. Um, he had said it to try to make the point that the NBA is racist in the determination and criteria by which it awards the MVP. And right now the leading MVP candidate in the NBA is a white player. This is what J.J. Reddick said on Tuesday's show calling that out. I want to just say something. Stephen A., I mean mean no offense to you, and I mean no offense to First Take, because I think this show is extremely valuable. It is an honor to be on this desk every day. It really is. But what we've just witnessed is the problem with this show, where we create narratives that do not exist in reality. The implication, what you are implying, that the white voters that vote on NBA are racist, that are, they, they favor white people. You I just not, said that. I you just, yes, not, you did. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. That is exactly what you implied, Kendrick Perkins. That is exactly what you implied. Secondly, hold on, hold on. I did not call. I stated the facts. I stated the facts. And you're not about to sit up We all know like what you implied the other day. We all know what you implied just Hold on. I have the feeling, I have the feeling that Kendrick Perkins did not look up the number. I could be wrong, but I don't think he looked up the number. Um, and so he thought he could say 80% of the voters are white and no one would challenge him on it. And the reason this happened is because somebody did challenge him, and that's very rare. And um, I will be curious to see whether J.J. Reddick is ever invited back on first take. I hope he is, and I think he might be. Uh, but he did something, as we talked about yesterday, that we just need more of. Besides the obvious that you should always speak truth to a lie or a misstatement, you are not, as a white person, supposed to pull in your horns, lean back out of the discussion, mind your own P's and Q's, when the discussion is about race. And I think too many people do it. And I think Kendrick Perkins and the other panelists probably figured J.J. Reddick would not jump in because he was the only white panelist. By the way, when you watch sports broadcasting, or for that matter, sports, you typically don't pay any attention to the race of the participants, which is one of the things people like me love about sports. But this was a teachable moment because Kendrick Perkins would totally have gotten away with it. Think about this for a minute. They employ, I don't know how many producers and assistants and researchers at ESPN. I mean, God, I, I envy the, the staff they must have, how great it must be to be able to summon up statistics and, and look things up and have statistical data and raw data. And, and, and I mean, that's because there's a lot of people behind the scenes who can get all that. Do you know how easy it would have been to know the right number? Do you know how easy it would have been during the broadcast, during the segment, to say, whoa, Kendrick, uh, that isn't true. Here's the actual number. See, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They had every capability of doing it, but they didn't do it. And we are in a better place. We are a healthier people if we talk with each other. And this this notion of 
well, I don't want to make waves and I don't want to, I don't want to come off like a racist and I don't want to, I don't want to be called a racist, which is, I think has become people's worst fear. You know, there used to be surveys that said people's worst fear was public speaking and that there were actually people who would answer the survey and say they were less afraid of dying than of having to stand up and give a speech. That's how afraid people were of public speaking. I think the greatest fear now is being called a racist. I look at the way people act around these discussions and these issues, and I'm convinced that is what we are avoiding the most. But we have to talk with each other. And when you're right, you have to challenge what's wrong. And it's not racist to do that, but I think it's very toxic not to. We're just getting word of a mass shooting in Germany. Um, this was in the city of Hamburg, and it was at a Jehovah's Witness uh i guess either church or or um or convocation center and it says that there were um several dead and injured um and that's about all we know right now but we'll bring you more as we get more on that again this is in germany tonight a mass uh shooting 210-599-5555 phone lines open on the jr poll is it ever appropriate to give a woman of courage award to a biological man? Because I have to say, as somebody that grew up whose who's, who's upbringing coincided or aligned with the rise of feminism, I'm just blown away. I'm blown away by the audacity of it. I'm blown away by the, the, the relative silence of women. But I also think that the Democratic Party has overplayed its hand. I, I don't know when this will happen, but they have committed, they have branded in a way that is so crazy that even people that don't really pay a lot of attention to politics are eventually going to say, y you're out of your mind. I mean, that's, I, I don't, I'm, I don't accept that. I'm not buying that. Uh, this isn't bashing. This isn't g going after people. It's very much a live and let live mentality. But you you can't ask me to play along with that. I'm not applauding that. If I'm at that ceremony, I'm not applauding as you hand a, a, an award that has been designated for a woman of courage to a man. And by the way, I don't accept that a man who feels he's a woman who identifies as a woman, I don't accept that that, by definition, is courageous. I, I, I don't. I mean, it might be audacious, but audacious is not the same thing as courageous. It might be, it might be, uh, it might be bold, but that doesn't make it brave. 210-599-5555. And in the meantime, what you're telling me is, there were only, this year apparently, they had 11 awards to give out, and this year there were only 10 women of courage in the entire world. In the entire world. They ran out of courageous women. Wow. I don't know, women, you need to start picking up your game. 210-599-5555. Uh, Congressman uh, Benny Thompson was the chairman of the January 6th committee, which is no longer in existence because... When the Democrats lost that majority in the House, it was disbanded by the new uh, Republican majority. So anyway, as you know, this week, Tucker Carlson's been playing some of the video that was um, available to the committee 
and from which the committee's television producer pulled clips and played them at the hearings that then were played on all the networks. And it's important to keep that in mind. When this committee chose a clip, they weren't just playing it in the hearing room. They were playing it on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, independent stations, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News Channel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera all the other news now and Newsmax and all these other. So um, they had all the video. They used clips to make the point that it was a violent riot, that it very nearly slaughtered members of Congress, that it was an attempt to overthrow the, the process of counting the vote and maybe even overthrow democracy. Tucker Carlson called and picked clips that emphasized the nonviolent parts of it that seemed to suggest not all of it was as advertised. And rightly, people can say, well, you both picked what you wanted to show. Okay. Here's where Benny Thompson comes in. He is saying in an interview, and this was on, I think it was on CNN, that the members of the committee didn't watch the video. That he and the other members of the committee, including the two Republicans, Cheney and Kinzinger, didn't watch the, the, the video. They had their aides watch and pull the video. Quote, I'm not actually aware of any member of the committee who uh, had access to the footage. We had a team of employees who kind of went through it. None of the January 6th members bothered. Threat to democracy. Worst thing since 9-11, comparable to the Civil War or Pearl Harbor. Didn't bother. Does that sound right to you? Is this, does this make sense to you? If you really believed you were looking at something on a plane with 9-11, JFK, Pearl Harbor... And there's video. I, I, you'd be up all night watching it. None of the committee members watched the footage. They let their staff view it. They let their staff choose it. Now, I understand it was a lot of work, 41,000-plus hours. And we talked about this the other day in regards to the John Fetterman story. The, the aides do all the work anyway. They read the bills. They take your calls. They go through your emails. They um, meet with the lobbyists and the interested parties for legislation. They apparently watch all the video. They probably pick all the witnesses who appear before all the committees. Members of Congress are like princes and princesses. They show up. People bow down. They ascend to the, the throne. They grace us with their presence, and they disappear. Didn't watch the video. And yet, remember how they spoke about it. And the, and the tears and the quavering voices and the, and the, and the soap opera-ish emotions for the television cameras. They acted 
like the video had shook them to their core. Never saw it till it was shown in excerpted form on the big screen behind them. Bunch of phonies. Bunch of absolute third-rate, I'd say community theater, but it would be an insult to community theater actors. So listen to this. The president of Mexico said today that fentanyl is not his problem. It's not his country's problem. Uh, that his country doesn't produce fentanyl or consume fentanyl, and that the United States and its much-vaunted family values are what are needed to fight drug abuse and addiction on this side of the border. So that's what AMLO is saying about fentanyl. And, of course, yesterday, the White House press secretary bragged that the current administration is breaking records in its effectiveness against interdicting drugs, uh, a claim no one believes or can find evidence of. And that brings us to our next guest, Chris Russo's the president of Texans for Strong Borders on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line right now. Chris Russo, good evening to you. Good afternoon, I should say. Good afternoon, Jack. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Um, so it's not their problem, and they don't know anything about it. Is Does, does that... Does that make any sense to you? Well, it doesn't make any sense, but if it's not their problem, it's certainly ours. We can tell by the tens of thousands of deaths we've had from fentanyl and the millions of people who have crossed our border illegally under the Biden administration and, uh, you know, from Mexico, which AMLO is, of course, in control of, or, you know, I don't know if he's in control of it, but the uh, cartels that are paying him off are certainly in control of it. Well, I think one way to look at this, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be a nice guy about this, because um, you know, my first thought was, is is he taking fentanyl or uh, or what? But 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 one way of looking at this, I guess, is that, and you just kind of uh, glanced at it, um, are, is the federal government of Mexico not really running things in the northern states and these cartels that everyone's talking about? Are we are we calling them cartels, but are they, are they essentially the de facto? Um, people running northern Mexico? Definitely, uh, to a large extent, and certainly they are in control of border crossings. I mean, we've, we've seen that over the last two years, and really longer than that, that any person seeking to cross the U.S.-Mexico border has to pay off or enter into a forced work agreement with the cartels. I keep hearing about the calls for Governor Abbott to declare an emergency, an invasion. Um, I know that your group uh, backs that. Um, help, help us understand, though, how the governor's actions can um, compensate for the federal policy or lack thereof. Certainly. So Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution gives states the ability to repel invasions without the authority of the federal government. And so what is going on now certainly fits the bill. As we said, this is not just random uh, immigration driven by economic inequality or economic opportunity. This is a coordinated effort. Cartels are controlling the flow of people and drugs across the border. And then the Texas Constitution talks about this power and grants it specifically to the governor. And it, it's actually been in, invoked before. So just before the Civil War, Sam Houston uh, took this power to commission seven new companies, the Texas Rangers, to combat the lawlessness of the border. 
Um, and so we and many other organizations, such as the Center for Renewing America with Trump Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, Ken Cuccinelli, have been calling for Governor Abbott to not only declare an invasion under this clause uh, and stop relying on the federal government who's reforcing, or sorry, who's refusing to enforce federal immigration law, but actually invoking the powers that are under that. Now, I'm not disagreeing with you, but let me play devil's advocate a little bit. So when Sam Houston did his thing, that was a very different era. There was no uh, established uh, federal presence on the border like there is now. There wasn't, um, as we've seen recently, this very showy deployment of additional DHS people. Um, how, how would the governor's, the governor taking action, uh, coincide with or not, in fact, get crosswise with the border patrol and the other federal, uh, presences along the border? I mean, how, how would that work? Because wouldn't he be doing something that contradicts what they're doing? Well, in a way, but the situation at the border right now is that basically the federal government under the Biden administration is refusing to properly mm-hmm. enforce federal right. immigration law. And but that's they are in there, violation right? Of, I mean, you can't, you can't, I agree with you, but as, as somebody has pointed out, they may be acting as a speed bump, but they are there. And if, if they're in the way of what you're doing, uh, what happens then? Well, I mean, I think that the likelihood is that if Governor Abbott were to act, then either the Biden administration blinks or we go into a lengthy, drawn-out court case uh, to basically force the Biden administration to enforce federal law. Um, and, and so I think that because of the number of people, I mean, we're talking about 5 million encounters with law enforcement and 1.2 million known gotaways in two years that the government of Texas really does not have a choice to wait mm-hmm. until 2025 to act. Mm-hmm. We can't wait mm-hmm. until a turnover of administration. So mm-hmm. um, I'm happy that we already have action on this. So there's been a concurrent resolution filed in the Texas Senate to acknowledge this reality and encourage the governor to act. And then there's a bill in the House that's been filed as well that further defines what a foreign invasion is and the powers of the state to combat that. Um, and so I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, and there, there could be a conflict between um, what the federal government is doing and then what the, when the state of Texas tries to step in. But I think what's most likely, likely to happen is a, one of the two parties links or we end up in a protracted lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, but in either case, I think that it's necessary for the state to step in Precisely because mm-hmm. right now nothing mm-hmm. is getting done, and mm-hmm. the nominal enforcement authority under Operation Lone Star is basically acting as catch and release with extra steps. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, yeah, and to your point, this is exactly why we have state government. I mean, if 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 they're not going to do anything, what would be the point? Um, but let me ask you this too, because I, I think you're making a lot of good points. Do you think that the word invasion? scares some politicians because they think that that word is directed at the old sort of notion that these are just people looking for a better life and escaping poverty. And and there are people like that, of course, but 
Um, when you use the word, when I use the word, what we're re- really referring to is under cover of massive illegal immigration, very organized, almost paramilitary uh, movement of men and drugs and other, um, probably other contraband, right? I mean, so is the, is the invasion word what stays the hand of a Greg Abbott? I'm not sure that it's the word necessarily because he's actually made reference to the word invasion and Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution. He just hasn't invoked those powers. But to certain politicians like John Cornyn, for example, who have tried to stay away from the invasion language, uh, I would say that this clause was talked about by James Madison in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. And he said that it could be used by states to suppress smuggling operations. And I would argue that that's exactly what's going on at the border is both human and drug smuggling that's highly organized, like I said, by these very, very militarized, very well-funded groups. I mean, we're talking about they've made $20 billion over the last year from human smuggling operations alone. I mean, it's certainly things are certainly coming into, into you know sharp focus when you have the obvious uh, position of the Biden administration. Then you have the current administration in Mexico saying it's not our problem. That that really only leaves the governor of Texas. Uh, so I think you make a strong argument there. Texans for strong borders. Chris Russo, appreciate your coming on with us. Hope you come back again. Thank you, and I'd be happy to come on. If you want to learn more about our organization, please visit our website, strongborders.org. Appreciate that. Thank you. I mentioned the Ford Mustang uh, rolled off the assembly line for the first time this day in 1964. Barbie, the Barbie doll, made its debut at a uh, toy convention on this day in 1959. So two iconic, I guess you could say iconic American adventures, right? Just a few years apart on this day. Wonder which one of them would get canceled first if it was introduced today. Um, Tony writes to Jack at KTSA.com. I think it's funny that we're letting millions of people cross into our southern border, but we won't allow Novak Djokovic into the U.S. because he's unvaccinated. Now, is that, I think that's right. I think, I think I did read that. So he's the, the, the tennis pro, uh, one of the top tennis players in the world. And, uh, I don't know how this is going to, end up, but I, I think I read, I, I'm not a big tennis fan, so help, bear with me if I'm wrong about this, but I think I read that he was being denied uh, entry into the United States. Anyway, um, I guess the obvious answer, Tony, would be that maybe he should, uh, you know, enter another way. You know what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm not, I'm, I'm just, I'm just noting, you know, if he, if he would be willing to take a more circuitous route into the United States, that's there. Don't look at me. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious, right? 210-599-5555. On the JR poll, uh, do you think it's ever appropriate to give a woman of courage award to a biological man? Don't misunderstand my question. I, I, I don't have any personal issue with biological men who feel that they are a woman who want to act dress rename themselves have the surgery I, by all means i'm not i'm not trying to stand in the way of any of that 
But if we're giving out recognition, if we are saying from all the women in the world, this is these are the, the most courageous, inspiring, brave stories, and we're giving these to men, <laughs> that is that's bonkers. And if you agree with me, I mean, whether you do or you don't, I want your vote. But but if you agree with me, how much longer can the Democratic Party sort of hang their hat on this hook? I mean, this is this is their issue. They're, they're, they own it. And they're adamant and militant about it. And, and I mean... It's not that many people, so you can't say, well, they're, they're pandering for their votes. They're, they're, they're not that many of them. Aren't they running the risk that at some point a whole lot of other people are going to say, your party's crazy? I mean, if, if you're asking me to believe this, I don't know that I can take anything you stand for seriously. So um, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a de- developing story. It's, it's just come across uh, in, in the last several minutes. I mentioned this to you. Um, so there, there was a mass shooting in Hamburg, Germany today. S- there is some number of people who were killed and others injured. Don't have exact numbers. The situation is still fluid. Um, obviously, our prayers and our sympathies are with all of these victims and, and uh, their families and the community. I, I don't know what shape this story will take in the coming hours, but I'm just going to tell you where my thoughts are at right now and then we'll see what happens okay so if i'm wrong about this i I, and i may very well be i I, i'll admit that but i wonder if there is a hesitancy by our cable networks to break in and cover this story because it is very important when there's a, a mass shooting in the United States to emphasize that this only happens in the United States. That the United States has a gun problem and a violence problem and a, and a, and a gun culture. And, and I'm not suggesting that the gun laws or the availability of guns is in any way comparable between the United States and Germany. I know it's not, but, <clears throat> but if you if you need people to believe that it only happens here, then it's pretty inconvenient anytime it happens somewhere else. And it does. It, it it does happen in countries that have somewhat more rigorous laws, far more rigorous laws. And obviously in most other countries, the whole notion of gun ownership is a permission-based thing meaning there's no right to have one there is just a question of how many licensing licenses or permits are 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 you know obtainable but the the discussion here is of course we come at it from the other side right so you start out with a right and then legislators put limits on that or make exceptions to that or say if you do this or you do that we can deprive you of that right and that's all debatable and it always will be but um in other countries if somebody legally has a gun they had to get permission and 
oftentimes in these mass shootings in, in places like Europe and Asia, it wasn't legal and they didn't have it. But again, I, I come back to will the networks and the news organizations in the United States, and again, it's very early, will they cover this significant loss of life today? Or will they think, well, you know, we, we, we really prefer the idea that this is an American problem. Just my thought on that. 210-599-5555. Now, I want to play you something that um, happened in Florida. This was yesterday. And um, see what you think about this. This is um, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, uh, had, had a news conference about what he called the book ban hoax. And he wanted to make the point that people outside of his state are claiming that he and his administration are banning books and clearing out the shelves of school libraries. There's nothing for these poor kids to read. They're banning books. When what they're doing is creating a review process and removing books that are pornographic or explicit from access by young kids. And so he, his people put together this video presentation of the book. So here's the Florida television stations carrying the governor's news conference, because he's very newsworthy. You know, he's not only the governor of the state, but he's ostensibly a presidential candidate. They actually had to cut away from the coverage. The television stations in Florida could not show the briefing because they couldn't show the content that was up on the screen behind the governor. The stuff was so dirty, was so explicit, that you can't put it on network television. And here was some of what Governor DeSantis said about that yesterday, cut number seven. We believe in in strong, rigorous education. We believe in the rights of parents to be involved in the education of their children and therefore have enacted curriculum transparency legislation so that the parents know what what books are being used in the classroom, uh, what books do their their kids uh, have access to, and then they have procedures where they can say, wait a minute, you know, some of the stuff you saw up there, uh, that is pornographic. Why would we have that in a media center with 10-year-old students? It's just wrong. And a lot of parents now have been empowered uh, to make sure that these are appropriate environments. I mean, I'm six, we have six, four, and two at home. I just think parents, when they're sending their kids to school, uh, they should not have to worry about this garbage being in the schools. They should just know that you're going to get a good education. We're going to do, do well to, to really do the basics and, and, and have our kids succeed. That's what they want. They don't want the garbage. And the idea that that's even in there is inappropriate for these young kids. But they are using your tax dollars to put that in. How is that an appropriate use of taxpayer dollars uh, to put that in? You know, I, I think this is a very smart approach. I, I really do. I mean, it's very analytical. It's fact-based. Here's the here are the examples. He's not veering off into you know uh, flighty rhetoric. 
There's no exaggeration. Here, here, here's what we're talking about. Here are examples of what we're talking about. Here are the counties and the school systems where we found these books in school libraries. And there's a process where parents can have them taken out. We're not banning them. We're just saying they shouldn't be in a school library, which I completely agree with. I think this is a very smart approach. And whatever you think about Ron DeSantis running for president, I'll just say this. When people elect Republicans, this is what they are supposed to do. This is what we expect. This is your brand, Republicans. These are the battles we want you to pick, and these are the battles we want you to win. This is very basic. This isn't like, uh, you know, it only, it only matters on the cable channels or it only matters to the, uh, the hardcore party insiders or the talk radio fanatics. It's, th- this is basic moms and dads, even if they didn't vote for them, this is just speaking to how they want their children to be innocent and, uh, protected. And how parents of all political stripes want to reserve the right to teach their kids whatever they want to teach them about values and, and sex. And I read an interesting article about, uh, DeSantis that, um, I wanted to share with you. I've been, I've been meaning to bring this up. And, um, naturally, of course, I don't have it in front of me, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best for memory. The, the author of the article was saying that the success of DeSantis is a victory for Donald Trump, which he, of course, does not see because he calls him Ron DeSanctimonious and uh, that meatball, and he's, you know, he, uh, he owes me everything. And now a lot of the Trump people are saying, I get emails about this, well, Jack, don't you know that Ron DeSantis was endorsed by Jeb Bush and Ron DeSantis was endorsed uh, by... um these other um, never-Trump uh, Republicans. And, and by the way, that is true of Jeb Bush. I don't know about some of the others, but Jeb Bush has endorsed Ron DeSantis. And so doesn't that, isn't that the kiss of death for Ron DeSantis? Uh, no, it's not. And I'll tell you why. The Republican Party has moved on from the Jeb Bushes uh, of the world. And Ron DeSantis doesn't hold Jeb Bush's positions. The only thing he has in common with Jeb Bush is that both of them were governor of Florida. But Ron DeSantis is fighting the battles of the current political landscape. He is winning those battles. And I think the reason people like Jeb Bush, and I believe also Paul Ryan, uh, have endorsed him um, is is not because he's an establishment guy, um, but because he looks like he's winning. I mean, it's not an insult that they're endorsing him. It's not a warning flag that they're endorsing him. He is not of cut from their cloth. Anyone can see that. And maybe in a perfect world, if they had more self-awareness, the Jeb Bushes of the world would say, well, I like this guy, but I'm not going to endorse him because I don't want people to... But, but he doesn't have that, so he doesn't know to do it. We wouldn't have Ron DeSantis without Donald Trump. I think that's absolutely right. I remember Ron DeSantis when he was in Congress. He wasn't like this. He learned from Donald Trump. 
as have a lot of Republicans. Before Trump, the establishment of the Republican Party was to say you're going to fight on these things and then not fight on them. Trump showed them that they could run on these issues, win on these issues, and govern on these issues. And whatever you think about Donald Trump as a person, and despite his massive ego, things like foreign policy and trade and border, he was right on. He's dragged the Republican Party right on them. And he seems to have lit a fire under Ron DeSantis. I I think Ron DeSantis is a younger, smarter, lighter on his feet version of Donald Trump. And so if Trump could see it, he'd realize that in Ron DeSantis, this is sort of the great, this was the point of the article. This is the, this is the culmination of everything I've been trying to do. I've, I've got this Republican party, a leader who will make sure they stay the course. Now again, I'm, I'm not telling you who to vote for, but the, the, the last thing I would think when I see quote unquote anti-Trump or never-Trump Republicans endorsing DeSantis is, well, that means DeSantis is no good. What it means is these people realize he's a winner. And if there's one thing I've seen in politics, it's that when somebody looks like they're winning, all kinds of people want to get on board that. And that says more about the guy driving the bus than it says about the people trying to get on the bus. So I mentioned last night, um, a 1974 Pontiac Trans Am went for $174,000 at a Florida classic car auction the other day. That's a record for that car. It was in a rare color, Admiralty Blue, and it was equipped with the Super Duty 455 and a manual transmission, making it only one of about 200 that were built that way and probably very few still around. And uh, we were talking about would... If we were to, you know, time travel 50 years into the future, is there a car today that you can imagine would be this collectible in 50 years? Like, what is a car, a a new 2023 car that you could imagine a collector would put down this kind of money for? Maybe a Corvette? Maybe, you know, a, like a, you know, one of the top of the line Corvettes, or may maybe maybe, uh, you know, something like um, and I'm not even sure what this would be, but like if if you were to take the last of the V10s or V12 supercars because those are going away, maybe it would be something with a manual transmission because those are going away. What do you think? I mean, is there anything today that you could imagine would be this collectible in 50 years? Because it's a 50-year-old car. Looks great in the pictures, by the way. And it's funny that the manual transmission is what sets it apart. It would, it would certainly have been very collectible anyway, but that was kind of the, the, the thing that broke the bank. We were talking one time, I don't know if you remember this, about what is a feature that the car companies, you wish they would bring back? What's a feature you wish they still put on, equipped cars with, offered as an option? And I'll tell you, the one I always think of 
I was thinking of it today, in fact, because it was it was uh, kind of getting muggy today. Are those little wing windows, those little vent windows that cars used to have, you know, where you didn't have to roll down the whole side window, but you could just crack that vent, that triangular shape, and just kind of aim it at you while you were driving, and you got a nice breeze, a nice shaft of fresh air, but you didn't blow the whole inside of the car up, and you didn't, your hair didn't go crazy, you didn't look like Albert Einstein when you got to wherever you were going. But, you know, that was that was a feature that all of a sudden was gone. No explanation. I don't think it went away because people didn't like it. I'm pretty sure, in fact, people did like it. I remember people complain. I remember when you first had cars where it had been omitted, people started complaining about it right away, the, the vent window. So the uh, auction in Florida was on a 1974 Pontiac Trans Am in a rare color with a rare engine and a manual transmission, and it went for $174,000, which is the most uh, yet. And and it's probably one of very few uh, like it still in existence. Uh, and, and I mean, it, the the thing with manual transmissions is that the new the new cars are not coming with them pretty much, and and consumers don't apparently want them. There's actually fewer and fewer people that know how to drive them. Uh, I had a lady the other day say to us, uh, I forgot what we were talking about, but she said that she loved having a manual transmission car because she felt that it was very unlikely anyone would steal it. It really is actually a pretty good point, right? I mean, what are the odds that the person stealing it will be able to shift it? But anyhow, uh, what is something you wish they would bring back? It, maybe it's you, you'd like to see more manual transmissions. Maybe it's the vent windows. Maybe it's something else. 210-599-5555. And Chris is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Hi, Chris. Hey, how's it going, Jack? It's going. How you doing? Uh, fantastic. Um, I love the, the little window vents, man. Those were awesome. But what's even better is the little AC vent under the steering wheel. Cause in the summertime that hits just right. Oh yeah, that's right. It would, it, it was like a little flat one, uh, really small and it was just right there under the, yeah. Now was that, I, I had a car that had that, but didn't have air conditioning. I think that was also kind of like a, a flow through vent, right? It, it may have been. Yeah, my car didn't have AC, but I remember that if you angled that right, you could get like, you know, if you were going fast enough, you'd kind of get like the flow through uh, of the air, and that was great. Perfect perfect place for it, yeah. Well, how do these things go away? I mean, nobody complained about that. Why did they stop doing it? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing electronics, the AC systems got better. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. If it's not broke, don't fix it, right? All right, Chris, thank you. Appreciate it. Rachel's on KTSA, Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Rachel. Hi there, Jack. Um, CD player, I cannot live without one. And we were going to buy a truck, uh, a modern truck. It had that big screen where you touch everything. Right. And I almost said, nope, don't want it. Don't even have a CD player. <laughs> Didn't care about anything yeah. else but the CD player. Yeah, those have kind of gone by the board. Although I'll tell you a funny thing, um, I just bought a used car, and I actually did not notice till after I got it that it had a CD mm-hmm. slot in the in the dashboard. And the the one I was replacing was five years older and didn't have. Mm-hmm. A, they had done away with the CD, but on this model, apparently they they kept it or brought it back. I was really excited because. I haven't been able to play CDs in years. Yeah, I even have a cassette player in my car. It's a 2003 Camry that I've had for 16 years. And 
sometimes I play a cassette in there from an old Christmas cassette I may still have. There you go. Got to got to love the mixtapes. I love it. <laughs> no, I'm with you on that. Bring back the CD player, says Rachel. All right, what's the feature the car companies need to bring back? 210-599-5555. Ray is on KTSA. Hi, Ray. Hey, how's it going? I would like to see them bring that four-mounted dimmer switch back. Oh, that was over there on the left there to put for like... All the uh, way up on the left-hand corner, yeah. Yeah. Little little metal, uh, little round button. metal button that you hit with your foot. Yeah, that was that was. But you know what? I will say this, Ray. I agree with you. But we all knew to go for that button. Today's drivers expect to find that control, you know, up on the stocks, right? Yeah, but I was thinking about it the other day, and I was thinking, wow, I yeah. remember I had a '68 yeah. Cadillac that had the uh, there you go. dimmer switch on the floor, and I I just thought, yeah, that would be something I'd like to bring back. I like that. Very good. Thank you, Ray. Uh, If you had a 68 Cadillac, you had a lot of cool things that we don't have anymore. Uh, Morgan says, uh, Mazda 929 had an oscillating AC, which was like a fan. I have to Google that. I did not know that. 210-599-5555. All right, something that they used to offer or used to be common in cars that they don't do anymore or hardly ever that you would like to see them bring back. Getting a lot of email about this. You can shoot me an email, jack at ktsa.com. Um, a lot of people are saying the CD player. Uh, a couple of people have said the magazine, the CD magazine, where you could do, you know, like five feet in, five discs and rotate them around. That was very nice. Um, what would it be for you? A couple of people have mentioned, um, and, and by the way, these are not necessarily things that are completely gone, but like a lot of people miss... Uh, when cars had a real handbrake lever, a physical, you know, yank it up for the handbrake. There are still some, but more and more that's becoming an electronic deal where you just flick a switch or push a button. Doesn't feel as, I don't know, when, it put, when you're putting like an emergency brake on or a parking brake on, it, it just doesn't feel the same when it's that little click. You know what I'm saying? 210 599 All right, so something that you wish they would bring back the car companies. David is on the radio. Hi, David. Hey, Jack. How you doing? Good. How are you? Great. So, Jack, so you remember the big old station wagons like the Oldsmobiles and the Ford Town and Country with the wood paneling on the side? Mm. Sure. I, I grew up in one of those. Which, yeah, which model it was, but the jump seat in the very back was turned around, Jack, so the kids could look out yeah. the back. Yeah. Yeah, so, I do remember that. I, w- I wish the SUVs nowadays, they would f- configure one that way. <laughs> now, I guess they don't because now you get into the, 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 the jump seat or the third row. Uh, nowadays, you get in there from the, the back doors. And in, in our day, if you were riding all right. the way in the back of a station wagon, you got in through the, the tailgate. That's right. So it would be hard to do it now because you'd have to get in that way. But I, I like the idea. I definitely do. You know what I did not like about those station wagons, David? I don't know if you had this. We had one where the gas fumes back there were so strong <laughs> that I think my parents were intentionally trying to, like, like knock us out so we'd be, like, quiet. Because, I mean, it, like, puts you to sleep. The, you would, like, get knocked out by the gas fumes. I, 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 don't, I don't smell that in the SUVs today with the third row, which I guess is a, is a good thing. All right. 
210-599-5555. What's a feature, uh, an old car feature that you, uh, wish they would bring back, uh, or that's hard to find? Used to be more common. 210-599-5555. You know, another one that, that I remember hearing a lot about was real keys. And they still have them. Some cars still have my, when I was test driving before I drove, the, bought the car that I bought, um, I was really surprised. I, I got into a 2022 model uh, car, and they had an actual ignition key that you had to put it in, turn it. I I like that. Nothing against the button. The button seemed cool when very few cars have it. Had it, but I don't know. I kind of like the real key. You know, I'm just that's just me. Very analog guy. When in doubt, I like analog. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. He mentioned the 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 wood uh, paneling. Of course, it wasn't real wood on those station wagons, right? Remember, it was that that like contact paper or that applique or whatever. Um, so in the in the particularly in the sixties and seventies, and a little bit in the eighties on some of the minivans, they would do that fake wood grain uh, kind of thing. And um, I think that kind of went away. Probably in the 80s or maybe early uh, 90s. Everything eventually makes a comeback, though, and I wonder if that will. You know, we've got a lot of retro SUVs. The Wagoneer name has come back over at Jeep. I wonder if somebody will bring back the, the fake wood, you know? Just saying. Not saying we need it. Just just wondering. Uh, that and maybe CB radios will come back. I had, a, I had bought a car that... Um, and I'm not putting them down, but I, I bought a car from one of the rental car companies. It, it, I think it works out for most people. I just happened to get a real lemon. I had a, a lot of problems with it. Couldn't keep it. But anyway, it was in the dealership a lot. And um, the guy over there gave me, uh, this was, oh, probably 88 or 89. They, they gave me a Ford Mustang to drive. It was a new car. It was a loaner car. It was a blast. <laughs> It was such a great car. And the only reason I, when I, when I finally gave up on the rental car, um, the only reason I didn't buy the must, or buy a Mustang at that time is because of, of the, uh, all the snow up there and you just needed something with front wheel drive and a little more practicality for the hours I was working and where I worked and everything else. Uh, long story short, I didn't buy the Mustang then. I haven't bought one yet. I still think I might one day. Not done driving yet, but that was a very cool experience. That's probably the coolest rental car, or loaner car I've ever had. Was that Mustang? And today is the birthday of the Ford Mustang. Uh, if you did not hear earlier, uh, on this day in 1964, okay, right, 59 years ago, uh, the first Ford Mustang rolled off the assembly line. It had made a big splash at the. Uh, or it was about to make a big splash at the um, New York World's Fair. It was going on around this time, and uh, there was no looking back. And not only did the Ford Mustang become an incredible runaway success story, several generations, still in production today, but, of course, it then inspired and gave the name to the segment the Pony Car. So you had to have, you know, GM had the Camaro and the Firebird and Dodge had the Challenger, and everybody got in on it, and that segment has kind of faded. There are not many pony cars left, but 
it created its own category, basically, which not too many cars can say they did. 210-599-5555. What do you wish they would bring back in the car world? Uh, it may not be completely gone. It may just be rare or hard to find. Uh, or maybe it is something that they just don't have anymore that you miss. 210-599-5555. Kent is on KTSA. Hi, Kent. Hey, Jack. I uh, learned to drive a manual transmission. And they had the shifter was a bar attached to the steering column. They called it three on, oh, a, yeah. uh, three on a three. Three on the tree, Yeah. Now and, I have to uh, ask you. Know, you I have to ask you because I've driven. I've driven manuals that were floor shifted. I never drove a car that yeah. had the manual shifter on the steering column. Was that harder? Was that trickier? Or did you get used to it? Uh, I thought it was easier because your hand on the wheel, you didn't have to move it very far to shift, mm. and you didn't have to mm. look down to where the the one mm. on the floor was. Interesting. I liked it. So, Yes. So it was actually it was actually easier, yeah. Uh, no, that is. I don't think anybody does that anymore, right? I don't think so. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I don't think there's any car in the world that has that. So yeah, manual shifter on the steering column says Kent. Jason's on KTSA. Hi, Jason. Hey, Jack. Hey, uh, my dream car, a Firebird with T-tops. Just love them. And I just think about it as a T-top. I know they had problems with leaking water. But you'd think with today, today's technology, they'd be able to fix that. But, again, the T-tops. I think they leaked because the the, the design of them made the, the, the body flex, right? That was what I think happened, and it would make the seals break. And you're right. I'm sure today they would be able to, to rectify that. You have, a, you have all these cars with sunroofs and moonroofs. It seems like they could probably do it. But was that? The, I think that was the problem, right, that, that they flexed and they, I, they I would leak. Was. And, of course, I have the yeah. girls in my uh, daughters in the car right now trying to explain to him what a t-top is (laughs) and that they have no reference we're gonna go out and find one just to show them there you go there you i think you i think you need to buy one i think you need to go out there and get yourself a weekend car just so you'll be able to illustrate it for him thank you jason 210-599-5555 or jack at ktsa.com uh what would you like to see the car companies bring back as a feature or option uh, or what have you that they don't uh, do very much anymore. Larry uh, wrote to me and said he's uh, been to Europe a number of times. He says over there, conversely, it's very hard to get a rental car with an automatic transmission. He says almost all of them uh, have uh, the manual. So, okay, I didn't know that. It's interesting. Uh, 210-599-5555, and Will is next. Hi, Will. Hey, Jack. Hey, Will. What would you like to see him bring back? Uh, the... The wood paneling made me think of this, but just just two tone, you don't really see much of that anymore. Um, about the only two tone you see is on pickup trucks with different mm-hmm. color at the very bottom mm-hmm. and on the on mm-hmm. the fenders. But I'm I mean, glad you said this because I liked that. Layers. Yeah, that I I liked yeah. that a lot, and that that did make a big comeback in the '70s. Remember that 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 started to show up again. Uh, a lot in the 70s, and I thought it looked great. Almost any car looked better with that two-tone, uh, you know, paint treatment, and um, with all the new colors that are out and all the new paint technologies, that would be great. The only thing, I, I guess it's it's back a little bit, because I do notice that a lot of SUVs now have a white roof or a black roof. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I think that's kind of a retro throwback look. I like it. Right. 
Right. I think they're trying to tie into like the old VW bus look or something like that. But I'm with you on the two-tone paint, Will. If they make them, you and I will both get on the list to get one for sure. Uh, 210-599-5555. A feature, an option, indoor, uh, I mean, interior, exterior, whatever that you wish the car companies would bring back. Danny says the bench seat, which is a great one. You know, I, I, I said this the other day. I think I said it on the air, but I might not have, um, the bench seat is crucial to teaching your kid how to drive. You you absolutely, that was so much easier when mom or dad or older brother or whoever could sit, you know, next to you, let you drive the car, but be right there to grab the wheel or take a stab at the brakes if need be. You know, when you're first, when you're first learning to drive and you're like practicing in a parking lot or on your neighborhood, uh, that bench seat was was crucial, and almost nobody has that anymore except for some full-size trucks. Um, we've been talking a little bit because today is the birthday of the Ford, the, well, I, I guess you could call it the birthday of the Ford Mustang. This is the day in 1964 that the first one rolled off the assembly line in Michigan. Do you, uh, can you think of something that maybe your first car had or an old car had or that cars back in the day had? that you wish were still uh, available or common or maybe they've gone away completely, what is a feature you wish the car companies would bring back? 210-599-5555. Um, this is what new car buyers say they want the most in their next vehicle. So the, the, this is the other end of the spectrum. These are the things that, that people most look for in new cars. Um and this is according to um, uh, a uh, research company called Auto Pacific. Uh, lane departure warnings. This is the top five. Number five, lane departure warnings. Uh, number four, all-wheel drive. Number three, parking sensors on the front and rear bumpers. Number two, blind spot monitoring. That's really common. A lot of cars have that now. Uh, and number one. People want heated seats. Well, la-di-da, right? All right, so um, that's now, but we're talking about then, something you wish they would bring back, 210-599-5555. Alex is on the radio. Hi, Alex. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah. I just wanted to let you know I actually had Mr. Jordan Ford's 64-and-a-half poppy seed red Mustang that I bought. Mm, wow. It was beautiful when they were on uh, Maine. I mean, Durango and St. Mary's right on the corner. Oh, okay. Uh, but Very I would nice. Love to see, I would love to see the three-quarter-inch white wall come back instead of all these black rims, black walls. <laughs> I would love to see that three-quarter-inch come back. Yeah, yeah. Thank Thank you for taking my call. You have a good night, sir. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, that that yeah, they don't see white walls too much anymore, even white letter tires. Uh, I remember I had a product, I don't know if they still make it, called Bleach White, and that was just to clean the white walls. It was all it was for. And uh, if they still make it, I'm not sure how much of it they sell, but I remember I always had that in my little in my little bucket, you know, with all my car care stuff, I had the, the armor all and the... You know, the uh, the bug and tar remover and the turtle wax and, you know, a couple of good sponges and a wax applicator and 
Uh, I would get like an old toothbrush when it wore out and you weren't using it as a toothbrush anymore. You'd put that in there and that was to like, you know, maybe clean the, the crevices in the alloy wheels or the hubcaps or whatever. But yeah, I had all that stuff and had bleach white. I remember too, I think I had like a crayon that they made to touch up. If you got gouges in your white walls, you could touch up your white walls. I was fanatical about it. You know, when you're young, that's all you, you have time. And you're not responsible for anything else. I wasn't. I didn't have a house. I didn't have a family. Your car is, you know, your fixation. I did all that stuff. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Miles is on the radio. Hi, Miles. Hey, Jack. How's it going? It's going. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. Uh, I'd like to see push button transmissions. Mm. Did you ever have one? Yeah, I have. Uh, I actually have two. I got a '61 Chrysler and a '58 Desoto with uh, push push button transmissions. That was a big marketing feature on those uh, Mopar cars, like in the late '50s and early '60s. Now, were those durable? I mean, did those hold up pretty good, or or what? Uh, I haven't had any problems with the ones I own. Uh, I mean, I didn't buy them back then. I wasn't even alive back right, then. Right. <laughs> right. Did you? They, um, they pretty good. And is are these cars that you have? Are these like are these like drivers, or do you just take them to shows, or what? Uh, one of them's a driver. The other one I got to put back together still. <laughs> still working on it. Very nice. Oh, well, you have to shoot me some pictures of that. I'd love to see that. Uh, thank you, Miles. Okay. Appreciate the call. Uh, 210-599-5555. Yeah, the push-button uh, transmissions. Um, I guess in a, in a way, it's almost like we're kind of coming full circle on some of this stuff because now you, you've got a lot of cars with those like dial transmissions where it's not a, it's not a, um, a lever or a, a a feature where you're throwing or or moving, physically moving to shift, right? And I guess, you know, almost every idea is really not a new idea, right? I mean, it's just an idea that's been gone so long, it just seems like a new idea. I mean, think how many people probably believe that these are the first electric cars ever. And in fact, if you go back to the history, the early history of the car, electric was a very looked like a very promising propulsion method you know there were steam cars and kerosene cars and electric cars it's just uh everything just comes back again and again right 210-599-5555 looking at the email uh hood ornaments t-tops i think we had a caller mention t-tops fender mounted turn signal indicators i think that was a chrysler thing mainly i know my dad's uh 66 newport had that and that was a thing where when you put on your directional or your blinker, depending upon what part of the country you're from, there was a, a light facing toward you, but out on the front leading edge of the front fender that told you that directional was on. So it was to, it was to tell you, it was a signal to you that your, your light was on. And I mean, that was a pretty good feature. I guess people do forget that they're on now. 210-599-5555. Eric is on the radio on KTSA. Hi, Eric. Hey, good evening, Jack. Uh, suicide doors. Oh yeah, yeah. There's, I think there's a few companies that are making those, uh, but they're pretty rare. Yeah, it's it's a real exclusive, high end stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess back in the day when they <clears throat> problems with the uh, legality to it, you know, and so I think now there's the issue also with that and. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you could overcome it with uh, all the electronics, but then uh, rollover safety. So, 
But I think it, uh, I think that looked so good on that '61 Lincoln Continental that just made that car. Well, let's see. I'm doing work on a '57 Eldorado Brome, and it has it. So it's like mm-hmm. a pretty interesting mm-hmm. car. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, they're, they makes a car look, and it's easy to get in and out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Uh, and I know a lot of people uh, when they think about suicide doors. Thank you, Eric. Uh, also think about uh, like hardtop type cars, and that's where you you have the frameless windows and the continuous roof. And when you have the windows down, the whole side of the car is open. It just looks clean, and it's you know very airy and um, kind of. Uh, to me, I kind of put those two together. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. So, what would be a feature the car companies really ought to bring back, or that you wish they would, or was more common? Steve is on KTSa. Hi, Steve. Hello, Jack. How are you doing? Good, sir. How are you? I'm good. Um, got one that's very general, but yet very specific. How about a little style? Oh, but, uh, man, you're right. I'll, I'll add one more to that to get more specific into it. How about chrome? Yeah, let's have some chrome, and let's have a little, like, design and style and not make everything in the in the wind tunnel so they all look the same, you know? I'm, I'm with you on I that 100%. When I, was a kid, I remember when I was a kid, you could see a car coming down the street at night, you just tell by its headlights what kind of car it was. I I remember I remember that too. The headlights or the taillights. And as a kid, you you knew even like the years, right? Like, oh, that's that's the seventy three Impala, not the seventy one Impala. Yeah, no, I re- I remember that. And and style is the reason. Good one, very good one. Uh, thanks to everybody that called in on this and emailed on this. Appreciate it. All good ones. Um, I don't think we'll get them, <laughs> but at least we got to remember them. They're having what they informally call the Twitter files hearings in the House of Representatives. It's the House Judiciary Committee. And today they had um, two reporters, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, whose reporting we've talked a lot about on this show. These are the two reporters, among others, but principally these two, who were approached um, by Elon Musk when he took over Twitter to help get out the uh, so-called Twitter files, the the internal documents that showed how closely and incestuously the old Twitter executives were working with the administration. And whatever you think politically or whatever side you're on, it, it should be clear that there's an incredible danger if the government is colluding with either the big tech companies or with, um, you know, news organizations. Because whatever side you're on, the one thing we can all agree on is that our system is based on not only the checks and balances in government, like the, the legislative, judicial, and executive branches, but also the checks and balances in, in a democratic society. And... So there has to be a natural resistance between government and the private sector. That was not happening uh, for years with the FBI, the DHS, the White House, and Twitter. So anyway, um, the purpose of the Republicans to call these hearings is to showcase this collusion. The purpose... Uh, Democrats on the Judiciary Committee have is to try to do cleanup on aisle five. And it started right away 
when the ranking Democratic member on the committee, Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, uh, started uh, in on journalist Matt Taibbi. Take a listen to this. This isn't just a matter of what data was given to these so-called journalists before us now. There are many legitimate questions about where Musk got the financing to buy Twitter. Uh, Ranking Member Plaskett, um, I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the I.F. Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written ten books, including four New York Times Times bestsellers. (laughs) Being a Republican witness today certainly casts a cloud over your objectivity. Before you became Elon Musk's hand-picked journalist, and pardon the oxymoron, you stated this on Joe Rogan's podcast about being spoon-fed information, and I quote, I think that's true of any kind of journalism, and you'll see it behind me here. I think that's true of any kind of journalism. Once you start getting handed things, then you've lost. They have you at that point, and you've got to get out of that habit. You just can't cross that line. Do you still believe what you told Mr. Rogan, yes or no? Yes or no? Yes. Good. Now, you crossed that line with the Twitter files. No. Elon Musk, it's my time. Please do not interrupt me. And the Republicans have brought in two of Elon okay, Musk. Okay, so hold on, hold on. I want to explain what she's doing there. So the first voice was Stacey Plaskett. She calls him so-called journalist. He says, well, uh, actually, I'm an award-winning journalist, written bestsellers, won National Magazine Awards, and he is. Matt Taibbi even comes from a family of journalists. Um, then we had uh, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and she's saying, well, if you worked with Musk, you compromised yourself as a journalist. Missing the point, which is that journalists were working with the old Twitter, and Democrats didn't think that was collusive or compromising at all. But then she tries to say, we didn't play the whole thing, but then she tries to say, well, um, didn't you get more followers and more Substack uh, subscribers because you were the guy with the Twitter files? And, And that's true. I mean... Uh, Taibbi got uh, exponentially more popular, more widely read, because he had arguably one of the biggest stories of the decade. I find it funny when politicians accuse someone of benefiting from doing their job or making money from doing their job or uh, doing better. I would not, if I was a member of Congress, have anything to say what was that uh, will smith quote get my wife's name out of your mouth yeah you're a member of congress you people go in there thousandaires and come out millionaires you've got nothing to say sit down shut up about people doing their job and making money but i must be forgetting something i thought it was the democrats just a few years ago who were so consternated about attacks on journalists. There was this guy who was president, and he would make fun of journalists, and he would berate them, and he would call them fake news. People like Debbie Wasserman Schultz would just have a cow. You know, they would be just, this is so wrong and so dangerous and so damaging, and it's anti-American. And But now... You're a so-called journalist. <laughs> you know, whatever I think of Taibbi and Schellenberger, I know what they do for a living. I know how they get their bag. Who pays Debbie Wasserman Schultz? 
How's she make her money? Who paid her? Who pays Stacy Plaskett? Yeah. See, we don't know, do we? I mean, we know the, the reported annual salary of a member of the House, but we also know that there's no way in hell that's all they're making, because again, they all leave office suspiciously well off. It's always this way. The stuff they yell about the most and point fingers about the most is always the stuff that applies to them. And then it devolved into this whole thing where they were trying to get Matt Taibbi to reveal sources for his reporting in the Twitter file story. Now, the source of all sources is Elon Musk, and everyone knows that. Taibbi was trying to say, I'm a journalist, I don't reveal sources. And this is how that went down between Taibbi and uh, Houston area Congresswoman Susana Garcia. Take a listen to this, cut number eight. Uh, Mr. Taibbi, um, I want to follow up a little bit on the ranking member's questions. Um, when was the first time that Mr. Musk approached you about writing uh, uh, the Twitter files? Again, Congresswoman, that would... Uh, I just need a date, sir. But I can't give it to you, unfortunately, because... This, this is a question of sourcing, and I don't give up. I'm it's a journalist. A, I don't read it my source. It's a question of chronology. No, that's a question because of sourcing. Because you earlier said that, that someone had sent you through the Internet some message about whether or not you would be interested in some information. Yes, and I refer to that person as a source. So you're not going to tell us when Musk first approached you? Again, Congressman, so you're, asking me to yes no. you're asking a journalist to reveal so a source. So then you consider Mr. Musk to be the direct source of all this? No, now you're, you're trying to get me to say that he is the source. I, 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 well, I just it, can't answer your question. Well, it is or he isn't. Sir. If you're telling me you can't answer because it's your source, well, then that only logical conclusion is that he is, in fact, your source. Well, you're free to conclude that. Well, sir, I just don't understand. You can't have it both ways, but let's move on. Cause well, no, he can. He's a journalist. No, he can't, because either Musk is the source and he can't talk about it, or Musk is not the source. And if Musk is not the source, then he can discuss No one has yielded. The gentlelady's out of order. You don't and get to she's speak. she's out of order because he's not recognized. The gentlelady's not recognized. You're not recognizing my time. He has not said that. What he has said is he's not going to reveal his source. And the fact that Democrats are pressuring him to do so is such an honor. We're asking him about his conversations with Musk. The gentlelady has not yielded you time. You don't get to talk over I have not yielded time to anybody. I want to reclaim my time. And I would ask the chairman to give me back some of I'd like our time back. Could we, could we, could, could we, the American people, reclaim our time from these bozos? You know, the, the, again, the funny thing about this is, and I guess if you live long enough, you see everything. The funny thing is, there was a time, not that long ago, I'm not talking about like black and white, uh, you know, movies. There was that, that time not long ago that Democrats were the ones who always raised the warning about the integrity of the institution of journalism and we need journalists, and we need to protect them, and they need to be able to protect their sources, and they need to be able to speak truth to power and afflict the comfortable. I mean, all the stuff that Taibbi and Schellenberger are doing is in the tradition of American journalism that that runs through, you know, the muckrakers of the 19th century and, uh, you know, the, the great investigative reporting uh, of, of, of the, uh, during the Depression. And then maybe like, if you want to think about like all the president's men, Woodward and Bernstein and, and so forth and so on. And they would always have told you up through the era of Trump, they would tell you this is democracy dies without this. 
now they're badgering these two. Tell us your tell us your sources. Tell us your timeline. You you have you, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, re- reporters go to prison in order to protect their sources, and when they do, they win awards for their heroism and their bravery and their uh, integrity. Unless you're telling this story. Because this Twitter story is clean up on aisle five for the Democrats. There's a there's a uh, bill in Colorado that would, um, if it uh, passes into law, create an annual mental health assessment program for sixth through twelfth graders. So every year, every public school student would get a mental health screening, and. Um, it's got some weird features to it. I was reading about it today. Like, the bill has an opt-out feature for parents, but it also has a feature where kids can opt back in without their parents' knowledge. Why am I not surprised? Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, all right, um, obviously our kids are our most precious, valuable, beloved creatures, commodities, what have you. We, we, we want them to be okay. We need to pay attention to their mental health, especially after the last few years. On the other hand, I guess when I look at this, I think to myself, is it the kids that we should be screening for mental health issues? I mean, I'd like to have annual mental health screenings for the politicians. I'd like to have annual mental health screenings for the school administrators. I'd like to have them for the teachers that are making these whacked out TikTok videos about the number, every teacher has, you know, the the greatest number of pride flags in their classroom or telling cool stories about the secrets they keep from parents with the kids or whatever it is. I mean, the, the mental health screenings may need to be a little broader than just the students. Just saying. And then, of course, people are going to say, you know, um, our kids are already, uh, like, kids can't bring over-the-counter medication to school. They can't take a Tylenol for a headache. But we're going to have mental health assessments administered by the school and without parental consent. That bothers some people. I mean, what do you think of this idea? I think what we always forget is that something can be a good idea, but not necessarily be a good idea for the government. Like, if we were just talking in the abstract, I think you would agree with me that we should, just as we pay attention to the physical health and well-being of our kids, we should pay attention to their mental health and well-being. So, should kids... Receive attention, yes. 
Should it be mandatory and under the aegis of the government schools? That's a different question. You know, there's a lot of things that are, quote-unquote, good for you. But that doesn't mean they should be mandatory or that they should be government-administered. And there's something a little creepy about the we're going to let the kids opt in without the parents knowing. And I'm not a mental health uh service provider, but it would seem to me that if you were sincerely interested in helping a young person, you would want to, if possible, include their family. Now, if it wasn't possible, if you were dealing with a child whose mental health issue was maybe related to a parent or related to what was going on at home, that's a different, that's a different thing. But to set up a system where we're going to um, sort of make it routine to skip over the parents, there's just way too much of that. They can, you know, I've had people try to tell me, well, you don't understand, and you don't know how bad it is out there, and I, I, I get all that. But here's how it looks to me as a parent. Every time I turn around, every time I turn around, you have some new thing that you are doing or proposing to do, or getting away with that excludes or cuts out the parents. Now, you may not think so, but that's how it looks. Maybe you don't see this pattern. Maybe you think you're doing the right thing or your heart's in the right place. That's just how it looks. It doesn't look like you're trying to help us with our kids. It looks like you think these kids belong to you. And, in fact, there have been teachers who have actually said that. We've played some of these videos for you where the teachers are like, what do the parents know? I've got a degree. I've got training. What do these parents have? Mm. So that's why we wonder. 210-599-5555. There was a, man, there's a story like this every day somewhere. I saw a story, I think it was a couple of days ago, about a, it was a Chick-fil-A somewhere. I don't remember where. And they had just put up a sign announcing that um, no one under the age of 16 could come in unless they were with an adult. And I think you might remember we had a story recently about a restaurant somewhere that had um, made a rule against children, I think it was what, under the age of 10? Now, when people talk about this stuff or debate it or react to it, a lot of times they talk about how unfair it is to kids. It's mean. It deprives them. But you realize when, when, a, when a business has to make a rule or feels it has to make a rule against children, it's really a rule against crappy parenting. It's not a rule against the kids because we know, I think, don't we, that Kids don't wake up one morning and decide to be feral, unruly, uncivilized, impolite. That's a function of what's given to them or not given to them at home. So if you don't like rules like this, if you find it disturbing, disappointing, it's anti-family, what are we coming to? This is a parenting story. Okay? I mean, I would think that a restaurant would normally, under normal circumstances, you'd you'd want families to come in, right? 
you want that you want that that table of six you want that big drive-through order or whatever it is you want families chick-fil-a is a family restaurant if it's nothing it's that so if you have to make a rule like this or you think you do what you were really reacting to is the absence of of loving discipline and it's not the kids all right, on the JR poll, the question today is it ever appropriate to give women of courage awards to biological men? 100% said no. A new question tomorrow when we get started at 4 live, or you can find the JR poll anytime at ktsa.com. This is interesting. Have you heard this? The gun involved in the Alec Baldwin case. Remember the shooting on the set of the movie Rust that killed the cinematographer and wounded the director and has Alec Baldwin and others up on charges? Uh, ABC News is reporting that prosecutors say the gun broke during testing and has been destroyed. Really? Well, that's interesting. Now, I don't know if that's true. ABC is reporting it. But I'm imagining, being a guy that watches, you know, Law and Order, just putting that out there, wouldn't that be kind of a key piece of evidence if you're conducting a manslaughter case trial? So... What do they mean it was destroyed? Do they mean it's like in pieces? Do they mean it, it, it disintegrated? Is it still, do they have any remain, remnants of it? What does that do to the prosecution of Alec Baldwin or the other defendant? Um, I mean, if they can't access the pistol, they can't, uh, stage a legitimate defense. So how exactly did the gun get destroyed? I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm getting out over my skis on this. This feels or this smells fishy. This smells really fishy. And it also feels a little like a oh the you know Epstein hung himself in his cell kind of thing. You know I don't know. Um, going to be very interesting to see if this is in fact true. It's being reported by ABC and. Uh, whether or not it is the the boon to the Alec Baldwin legal team that I, I think it might be. Again, we'll we'll see how it uh, plays out. Uh, finally tonight, I guess we should have listened to all of the uh, mask mandates and the mask warnings, the lectures about masks. Remember all that? There, there is a story tonight out of... Uh, WNBC in New York, that the city's rat population now has COVID-19. The rats have caught COVID-19. And you know, you never, ever did see them wearing a mask. They certainly don't social distance. And I'm pretty sure they didn't get uh, vaccines. So the uh, public health department is reporting that uh, the rat population in New York City is showing high rates. Apparently they test them 
I didn't know they tested them for COVID. Uh, apparently, they're showing high rates of uh, COVID-19 infection. The rat population, the concern, by the way, is that if they keep passing it to one another, uh, eventually, does it spin up into some new strain or variant that gets passed back uh, to people? I, I hate to say this, and I don't mean to end the show on a down note, but does it seem to you like there might be one more variant? Maybe, oh, I don't know, next year? Just throwing that out there. Just, you know. Like, it's hard to, you know. I, I just get the feeling there are people that want to give that tree one more shake, you know? Used it in the 2020 election, used it in the 2022 election. You and I thought, okay, it's played out. It's over. Eh. I read this. I'm like, I don't know. Somebody's going to, somebody's going to file this story away, right? We need this bears more study. The rats, the rats put in ratatouille tonight in the DVD player. All right. Uh, we're live tomorrow from four to seven. We've got a new JR poll. We'll talk restaurants on the dish and find our show on demand anytime you get uh, podcasts or at KTSA.com.